All right. First Peter. Today we're going to tackle chapter 3 again. We're still in chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. I'm going to read those now from the New King James. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, this is rather timely, (laughs) those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Let's pray. Father, we lift up this time in your word. We pray that you'd help us to get through this passage if possible. And we ask you to speak to our hearts. May your Holy Spirit burn the truth of your word deep into our hearts. That it would have a transforming effect on our hearts and minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this first statement, verse 13. Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? This statement is made, I believe, in light of the previous three verses that we covered last time. Verses 10 through 12, where Paul writes, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Then he proceeds on to make this statement. Who is he who will harm you? It reminds me of what Paul says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, in the previous verses, he talked about the works of the flesh, and then he contrasts them with the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But here's the kicker. Against such, there is no law. And so as a general rule, we can say that it's never unlawful to do good now it seems like we might be approaching a time when that might change but certainly at the time paul wrote this and for the vast majority of human history in most societies it's never unlawful to do good rarely will someone harm you for doing the right thing but peter's point as he continues is this there will be suffering in life we know that But it's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing wrong. Would you agree with that statement? Now, see, in the flesh, we react just the opposite. Wait a minute. I didn't do anything. That's not fair. I want justice. Who had more of a right to say that than any other human being in history? Jesus Christ. Right? He was treated unjustly. He was treated unfairly. He was falsely accused. And he was crucified. Yet the Bible says, like a lamb or a sheep led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. You know what I found? Every time I try to defend myself, I get in trouble. (laughs) Because Satan is the father of all lies. And he will take anything and everything you say and twist it and use it against you. But you know what? When I let God be my defender, no one can take him down. No one can outdo him. 
They tried so many times over the course of Jesus' three-year ministry to trap him, and every single time he turned it around on them. They couldn't trap him. And the only way they were able to crucify him is that when he was brought before them, he opened not his mouth. That's the guy I want defending me. How about you? He says, Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Now, according to the Scriptures, God alone is good. Jesus even confirmed that. If we become true followers of God, Jehovah God, the Creator of all things, and His Son, Jesus Christ, if you become followers of what is good, followers of Christ, ultimately no real harm can come to those who belong to Christ. How many of you believe that? Now again, that doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to good people in this life, in this world. Satan is the prince of this world. We live in a fallen world. We live in bodies that are under a fallen state as a result of original sin. When I say ultimately no harm can come to those who belong to Christ because if your physical body dies, that's the beginning of eternal life. We're promised a new body, a resurrection body, an eternal body, and we are to live forever in paradise in the presence of God. How do you hurt somebody that has that? You can't. What we have in Christ cannot be taken from us. Luke eighteen nineteen, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. Now Jesus isn't saying he's not good. He's just asking the guy, Do you realize that I'm God? No one is good. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Do you know? Do you realize? Do you understand? Yes, I'm good because I'm God. Psalms 118.6 The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Boy, we need to recite that psalm every day, don't we? The Lord's on my side. The devil's always trying to tell you, no, he's not. God's mad at you. God doesn't like you. That's a lie from the pit of hell. If you are for God, if you know God, if you follow what, that which is good, then the Lord is on your side. And any other voice that you hear that tells you different, you need to rebuke that voice in the name of Jesus and stand on the promises of God's Word. The Lord is on my side. I just had a thought pop into my mind. I have to take a little parenthesis here. Again, I'm trying to eliminate or at least reduce my opening monologues. But the Holy Spirit won't let me. Now, there's a couple options. One, you could say, that's not the Holy Spirit, man. That's your own trip. Well, you're welcome to your opinion. But when I know that people, some people don't like it when I do that, why would I do it anyway? I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be nasty. It's just that God won't let me not do it. Okay, so deal with it. <laughs> but there is another argument that some might make. Well, you're not going to reach the young people with that attitude. If you want to reach the young people, 
what's wrong with using some light shows and some fog machines and some, you know, secular music and so forth. I mean, the, end, the goal is still to reach them for Christ, right? We're not changing the message. We're just changing the methodology. Well, you know what? For one thing, yes, I think they are changing the message. Randy says he guarantees it. He's seen it. And a pastor friend of mine that I spoke with recently who is between churches shared with me that he's been visiting various churches and he can't find any where the Word of God is being taught the way it ought to be. Again, I'm not trying to lift us up as some exclusive club. We're the only good ones, the only right ones. All I know is those that truly teach the Scriptures verse by verse, it's always been rare to tell you the truth. It's even more rare now than it's ever been. Those churches that are preaching and teaching the uncompromised Word of God are few and far between and you can take it to the bank. So as for that argument, well, you're just cutting yourself off from the millennials and the, you know, the Y's and the Z's. And Here's my question. If churches are using gimmicks to draw young people, what are they drawing them to? Are they drawing them to the real Jesus? Are they bringing into a place of confession of sin and repentance, turning from sin and turning towards God, being born again by the Spirit of God and becoming true disciples of Christ? Or are they just drawing them into a religious experience? I believe it's the latter, the religious experience. In previous times, some have referred to it as easy believism. The compromised gospel. So, that popped into my head, so I just had to bring that up. One more psalm, Psalm 91.9. Because you've made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. How many of you have made the Lord Most High your dwelling place here today? Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. John chapter 15, ask what you will and it shall be done. To dwell, to live in Christ. He's your life. He's not Sunday morning only. He's not a religious experience. He's not a light show and a fog machine. He's your dwelling place. If you make the Lord Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you. Remember what Joseph told his brothers after they threw him in a pit? They wanted him to die. Reuben stepped in and said, Listen, guys, I think we're taking this a little too far. Okay, we'll just sell him into slavery. So they sold him to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt and sold him to a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. Then she blamed him. He got thrown in jail. I thought that stuff just happened in Washington, but... <laughs> in Hollywood. <laughs> but at the end of the day, Joseph's in jail... He almost gets executed, but he winds up being the number two guy in the land, the Joe Biden, if you will. No. Oh, God forbid. No, Lord. No, he's the number two guy in the land, next to Pharaoh himself, number two. And he saves Egypt from famine, and his family comes down from Canaan 
because they're in famine and they're going to die. The brothers, when they find out who he really is, they're scared to death because they know what they did to him and they're fully expecting him to take vengeance. But it says, he says, no, guys, it's okay because what you intended for evil, God intended for good. For you and I, that applies to those machinations of the devil, the things that he would try to launch against us. And we can say with confidence that what the devil intends for evil or anybody else for that matter, God intends for good. He will, you see, you can't perpetrate evil on a believer because God will always use it for good somehow. And we would be a lot better off if we could really hammer that into our hearts and minds to know that, to believe that, because the devil operates with smoke and mirrors. Oh, wait. Hmm. Sounds familiar. Fear. He tries to put you in a condition and a state of fear to manipulate you, to discourage you, to condemn you, but perfect love. Who has perfect love? God. Perfect love casts out all fear. If we are experiencing fear, then we're not appropriating that perfect love to the degree that we need to be. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm just saying that's what we need to do. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Okay, verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, so Peter's not promising us that we won't. He's just saying, by and large, if you are following that which is good, if you're following God and you're living a godly life, you're not going to be out stealing. You're not going to be out raping, pillaging, plundering, murdering, doing drugs. Hanging out on Skid Row. I don't know if there is Skid Row anymore, but that used to be the, you know, where the bums, the drunks, the drug addicts hung out, Skid Row. If you're not doing any of that, then more than likely things are going to go pretty well for you. But Peter says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. The word here that's translated blessed, makarioi, was used by Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed are they. Remember that? Let me read a little bit of that for you. Matthew 5.10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There it is. Those who are blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are you willing to suffer some persecution for righteousness' sake in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven? We should be, right? Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, to be blessed in this context does not mean to feel delighted, as so many are seeking, I want to feel delighted. That pastor did not make me feel delighted. It means to be highly privileged. So what is Jesus saying? Highly privileged are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. High, highly privileged are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
it is a privilege to suffer for Christ. Notice he says, for my sake. Our motivation for doing good, for doing right, should be our love for God and our desire to please Him and to honor Him with our lives. And then he says, Peter says, do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. Or the NIV, it says, do not fear what they fear. I like this translation in this place. Do not fear what they fear. Most people do operate largely out of fear. And they try to bury their fears with drugs and alcohol and sex and everything else you can think of. The greatest fear, of course, is the fear of death because they have no hope for life after death. Do not fear what they fear. The world is motivated by fear. We should not be because we have nothing to fear. Peter's quoting here from Isaiah, Isaiah 8, 12, 13. Do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. Again, this is from the NIV. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And I'm going to say that for the majority of people, most people, believer and non-believer, one of the biggest problems we have in life is we've got it all backwards. We don't fear God as much as we should, and we fear men too much. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. Now again, if you are following that which is good, you have nothing to fear, but you, fear of God also has to do with respect, honoring Him, being in awe of Him, being fully aware of who He is what he has done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. What can man do to me? Do not fear the one, Jesus says, who, uh, those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. No human being has authority over your soul. He, they might take your physical life. They can't touch your soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body, in hell. A lot of people read that verse and they think Jesus is talking about the devil. No. The only one in all of creation that has authority over not only your body, but your soul, is God. And if you reject Him, if you don't follow that which is good, then when you stand before Him, you will be denied entry into His presence and both your body and your soul will be destroyed in hell. And that is a permanent, conscious state of torment. And you say, well, what kind of God would do that? It doesn't sound like a loving God to me, really. Well, that's the same God that sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for your sins. The only perfect, sinless man who ever walked the earth, and He was sacrificed for you and for me. Does that sound like a God of love? Verse 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an offense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. To sanctify means to set apart. To set apart the Lord in your hearts. Jesus Christ is to occupy a special place in our hearts reserved only for Him. When He is the Lord... 
the master, the king, the ruler of our lives, we will not fear men. But sadly, there are those who seem to want to share that space with other things, other people, other interests. There can only be one king on the throne of your heart. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready or be prepared. How many of you have heard of Josh McDowell? A great apologetic teacher. Came to prominence back, I guess, in the 60s. I think he graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary. Was a real key uh, a component of the Jesus movement. Wrote some great books. Evidence that demands a verdict. Was the first book that really had a major impact on the youth of the uh, 60s, 70s, back in that era. Great work on apologetics. And one of the quotes from his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he says, We are called to be ready and able to give a reasonable defense for our faith in Christ. We don't practice a blind faith. It is belief in response to evidence. And you see, that's where so many people get confused. They make a decision based upon feelings, emotions, rumors, hearsay, second, third, fourth-hand information, but when you really examine the evidence, and that's the premise of the writings of Josh McDowell, when you really examine the evidence, there can be no other conclusion but that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God, that He died on the cross for the sins of the world, and on the third day He rose from the dead. Most people do not make their decisions about Christ based upon the evidence. Except when the Holy Spirit comes and touches your heart, quickens your heart, quickens your mind, and gives you the insight and the understanding and you realize it really is all true. Our faith, and I mentioned this recently, it involves the mind as well as the will and the emotions. Scoffers, mockers would say, well, you've got to put your brain in neutral to be a Christian. You've got to be brainwashed. And as Barry McGuire once said, yeah, but at least I know who washed my brain. God doesn't expect every Christian to be a learned scholar and apologist for the Christian faith. But each Christian is called to understand and be able to clearly explain his own reasons for being a Christian and his own grasp of the faith. Paul echoes this in 2 Timothy 2.15. He says to Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Always be ready to give to every man an answer. And you know, I, I, I have a lot of confidence in this congregation. I'm very impressed by you guys. I mean, people are always bringing up things that I talked about weeks, months, and years ago. I remember the statistic that I shared some time back where they have hypothesized or somehow come up with this equation that about 90% of what people here in church is gone by the time they leave the parking lot. But you know what? I don't know if that's true here. Because you guys know your stuff. And that blesses me. So for those of you who haven't been here very long or if you're visiting, one thing I can say about this congregation is this room is filled with strong believers. And I'm proud of you. 
I don't say that lightly, flippantly. I'm not being flattering. It's just the flat out truth. In fact, sometimes you guys intimidate me. Sometimes I think, I, in fact, I know some of you know more than I do. That's okay. That's how it should be. A good teacher will have students that eventually pass him or her up. That's how it should be. There could be no greater compliment. Okay, to give a defense or an answer. The word literally means an apology, which means a de verbal defense. Apologian in the Greek, the defense, which is a defendant makes before a judge. Hence the term apologetics. We, need, we tend to think of an apology as making excuses, but really, technically, biblically, it's giving a defense. Defending your faith. To whom? Peter says to everyone who asks. You know, it's been said that Christians and non-Christians have something in common. We're both uptight about evangelism. <laughs> we are afraid to tell them and they're afraid we're going to tell them. But ideally, we should be living in such a way that people ask us about our faith. Notice what Peter says to everyone who asks. Henry Ward Beecher once said, if you want your neighbor to know what Christ will do for him, let the neighbor see what Christ has done for you. And if you live by the same values and priorities that Jesus has, you will find evangelism happening naturally. It becomes a lifestyle and not a project. And then Peter gives some qualifiers here. He says, always be ready to give a defense or an answer, an apology, a verbal defense to everyone who asks with meekness or gentleness and fear or respect, depending upon your translation. With meekness and fear or gentleness and respect. King James uses the word respect. And the Greek word is phobos, fear. Whereas respect for one's wife, as we saw back in verse 7, is time, which means to honor. The gentleness, by the way, is directed toward the inquirer, the one asking you about your faith. And that would be in contrast, I guess, to some of the harsh street preachers and, preachers and legalists out there with their turn or burn, fly or fry message. Every once in a while I get the opportunity uh, I do all that I can. And of course, lately, in light of what's been happening with the NFL, it probably won't happen anymore. But once in a while, I would go to a Bronco game, usually a Monday night, Thursday night. I don't like to miss church for football. I don't think that's appropriate. I may have done it once or twice, to be, to be honest. But when we come out of the stadium after the game, there's always these guys out there with megaphones and they're preaching. And on the one hand, I, I admire them. I appreciate them for their boldness for their willingness to go out in public and do that. But at the same time, I'm a little bit sad because in my heart of hearts, I feel like they may be doing more harm than good. Their approach. Their heart's in the right place. They want to reach people for Christ. But this gentleness is an important factor. Romans 2, 4, Or, you did, or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness 
or kindness of God leads you to repentance. The kindness of God, the gentleness, the meekness leads you to repentance. Now, having said that, there are circumstances where the Holy Spirit might lead you to give a stronger exhortation. Jude talks about this in his one chapter book, Jude 1, 22 and 23. Have compassion. On some have compassion, making a distinction. What he means is, we need wisdom, we need discernment from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will show us how to reach someone if we allow Him to work in us and through us. He will give us words of wisdom, word of knowledge. He will enable us to know how to most effectively minister. That's why sometimes these cut and dried, you know, four spiritual laws and these type of things. Again, God can and will use just about anything. But the best way is to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, making a distinction. So on some, compassion. But others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. And so what Jude is saying is, some people that we bring to Christ, yeah, we need to have compassion. We need to exercise that gentleness that Peter is talking about. But sometimes people need to get a little bit scared. The way God reached me and brought me back to Christ was by taking me at the age of 16 to all these scriptures. I hadn't been going to church for several years, but I had a Bible. hadn't read it for a while, but all of a sudden, for some reason, I'm picking up my Bible and I'm reading all this stuff about the last days, the end times. And it got me a little concerned because I knew I wasn't ready. But by and large, we take Peter's uh, injunction here is the uh, the primary number one approach, the meekness or gentleness, and the fear or the respect. And even when we do feel led by the Spirit to come with the stronger um, challenge, we're not to be arrogant about it, thinking that we have all the answers. Rather, we are to get to act with respect towards men and reverence or fear for God. How many know who Johnny Erickson Tata is? Beautiful lady. Tremendous ministry. Came a quadriplegic as a teenager due to a diving accident. And again, some of the folks in the faith community said, well, if she'd had enough faith, she could be healed. If she'd have been healed, she wouldn't have impacted the millions of people all over the world that she's impacted. Again, God uses that which the enemy intends for evil God uses for good. She said, nothing will convince and convict those around us like the peaceful and positive way you and I respond to our 20th century, now 21st century, hurts and distress. The unbelieving world, your neighbors, the guy at the gas station, the postman, the lady at the cleaners, your boss at work is observing the way we undergo our trials. Uh-oh, feel convicted yet? I do. Oftentimes, again, we talk about the fact that so many people don't stop to think how their words, their actions are going to affect those around them. Even as believers, oftentimes we react in the moment without thinking about other people seeing us and what they think of how we're behaving. We're not worried because we know we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by works. So even when we act like donkeys, 
There's another name for that beast, as you know. We don't worry about it because, oh, God will forgive us. Well, one, we're not to presume upon the grace of God. Those whom the Lord loves, he chastens. We might be in line for a little spanking. But secondarily, that's a very selfish attitude to take when we only think about our own salvation. Others see how we behave, how we act, and they say, wow, if that's a Christian, I don't want any part of it. Wow. We forget, don't we, sometimes about the responsibility that we have. We are representatives, ambassadors for Christ. We're not here for ourselves anymore. When you give your life to Christ, when you confess your sins, you repent, and you invite Jesus Christ to come and live inside of you and be your Lord and Savior, and you were born again by the Spirit of God, as Bob Dylan very aptly put it, you become the property of Jesus. And you're not here for yourself anymore. You're here. I think he's doing well as far as I know. I hear good things. Okay, First Peter 3.16. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, not if but when, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So how do we have or keep a clear conscience, a good conscience? We have here having a good conscience. One translation says keeping a clear conscience. How do we do that? By practicing confession of sin, repentance, keep our, keeping ourselves in good standing with God, not letting our sins get between us and Him. How do you keep that good conscience? You know, Jesus said, here comes Satan and he has no place in me. How many of us can say that? When we don't practice regular confession of sin and repentance, Satan gets little hooks in us that he can grab onto and manipulate to keep that good conscience, to keep that clear conscience. It's not a matter of, oh no, I can't ever sin again. I think I'm going to have somebody put me in a straitjacket and I'm going to stay in the house. So I can't sin, except you can sin with your mind. The only alternative is to confess. Every time you're aware that you've sinned, and that's why David said, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Because we can hide our own sin. We need to ask God, the Holy Spirit, please show me, Lord. I probably got some blind spots. How many of you know what a blind spot is when you're driving? Man, I almost swerved right into some guy the other night. I looked in my mirror, saw nothing, but he was right alongside of me. I had a blind spot. It could have been disastrous. You get those little round mirrors, don't you? And put them on your big mirror. The Holy Ghost <laughs> is our little round mirror, okay? To reveal our blind spots. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hence, clear conscience clean conscience. Not because you know you're perfect. You know you're not. But you know you're forgiven. You know you've confessed. You've made things right with God. You keep that clear conscience that when they defame you as evildoers. If our hearts aren't right with God, there's a good chance we won't get asked about our faith. Profession without practice carries no weight, it has been said. Profession without practice carries no weight. But if we do our guilt and shame will prevent us from being able to witness 
testify and defend our faith. If we do get asked and we're not in right standing with God, we're going to shy away. We're going to, our guilt and shame is going to prevent us from being able to witness, to testify and defend our faith. That when they defame you as evildoers, or another translation says, speak maliciously against your good behavior. In the Greek, the word malice includes not only words, but deeds. So they can be malicious not only in their words, but in harmful acts. We know there are Christians that get physically assaulted for their faith, for their beliefs. That when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ, it is our walk as Christians that will cause some to persecute us. Most people aren't bothered by a good deed. You can be a good citizen, but it's being a good Christian that will cause some to persecute us. Most people aren't bothered by a good deed unless it's done in the name of Jesus. Have you noticed that? If you just do a good deed for a good deed's sake, but if you throw the name of Jesus in there, it's a whole different ballgame. A whole different ballgame. Does that mean, you know what some people are doing now? They're leaving out the name of Jesus. Because, well, we don't want to offend anybody, really. It's not how my Bible reads. We don't leave out the name of Jesus because it offends people. We use the name of Jesus and are to be prepared to take the heat. Not because we want to stir things up deliberately and cause problems, but because the Bible says that will happen if you truly stand for Christ. And Peter says, that so they may be ashamed. Once again, Peter encourages his readers with the fact that good behavior is their best defense against unjust punishment and persecution. If our walk doesn't match our talk, we will be put to shame. But if it does, those who attack us will be shamed. We're going to make it. Final verse. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It's better. Peter's not saying that suffering is ever fun. He's not saying, well, if you suffer for doing good, it's just like a party. But he's saying it is better. There is going to be suffering in this life. It can't be avoided. But it's much better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Remember Peter's words to the slave back in 1 Peter 2.20. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. In other words, you did something. Maybe you stole something from your master and he gave you a beating. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Just like I said earlier, the opposite. Oh, that's not right. That's not fair. That's unjust. I didn't do it. No testimony there. No witness there. No real victory there. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Again, what are we more concerned about? Commendation from men or commendation from God? And if our desire is to receive commendation from God, that will often result in condemnation from men. The goal here is not to get slandered or beaten up. The goal is to do good regardless of the consequences. 
to fear God, not men, and to live in such a way that people will want what you've got. A gentleman by the name of M. Francois Gollard said, Our prayers for the evangelization of the world are only bitter irony so long as we only give our lip service and draw back from the sacrifice of ourselves. Let me read that one more time. Our prayers for the evangelization of the world are only bitter irony so long as we only give our lip service and draw back from the sacrifice of ourselves. Finally, Peter says, if it is the will of God. It is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He's speaking there of the suffering. If it's the will of God that you suffer for doing good, and sometimes people do. If you're suffering for doing evil, then, well, you're reaping what you've sown. But if you're suffering for doing good, then we have to believe that's the will of God. As believers, nothing can happen unless God allows it. And if He allows it, we can rest in the knowledge that He will use it for good in our lives. Again, dealing with that issue of fear. If we suffer for doing wrong, we're just getting what we deserve. If we suffer for doing right in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are being blessed. We are being highly privileged. You can see how we need the mind of Christ, right? As we're told in Romans chapter 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Because we don't tend to think the way God thinks. We need a complete change of heart and mind. Because God says to suffer for doing good in His name, for His sake, is to be highly privileged. And we also see here in this passage, God uses those who are ready. They're prepared. Always be ready. Always be prepared. We prepare ourselves by keeping our consciences clear and by studying to show ourselves approved. So I came up with a little variation on the Field of Dreams theme. In Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner says, if you build it, they will come. My version is, if you live it, they will ask. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. It is powerful. It's alive. It's active, sharper than any two-edged sword dividing asunder between soul and spirit, down to the, the marrow, the very intense and thoughts of the heart. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for your truth. Lord, we pray that we could all take this message to heart today. And Lord, we could work and try harder to be more like Jesus. We know that we need the power of your Holy Spirit. We need the transforming power of your word at work in our lives, in our hearts and minds. Lord, may we be those who are stop to think before we speak, stop to think before we act, and that we would be aware of those around us and what they may be observing in our behavior that will either draw them to Christ or turn them away. Lord, help us to keep that clear conscience by practicing confession and repentance and help us to study to show ourselves approved. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness to us. Help us to be faithful to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.